Hey everyone, welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Guards of Eden. Today's guest is Joe Beale. I was introduced to Joe and her story through a mutual friend of ours in Bridget, who's also been on Guards of Eden, if you get the opportunity to check that out. And she shared her story with Bridget on her podcast, which is called In Bed with Bridget. Once again, check it out if you can. And it's such an amazing story with so many twists and turns and ups and downs that when I spoke to Bridget and mentioned that I was kind of struggling for guests at the end of season two, she suggested Joe. And it was like a massive light bulb moment because Joe is the exact reason that I kind of built Guards of Eden. It's to celebrate these people that are doing such amazing things now and that their journeys have been unorthodox. And being able to share that is such an honour And I was so grateful when Joe accepted to come on the podcast. When I prep these podcasts, what happens is, is that I try to empathize with the person's journey and it kind of, I work from that place to ask the questions. So when I got into the interview, there is a part of me that had kind of tried my best to empathize with what Joe's gone through. And it ended up being that Joe's insights and her grace was something that wasn't surprising, but it was amazing and inspiring and thought-provoking so it made for such an amazing interview and I can't wait for you guys to hear it it is a remote interview so the sound quality dipped in and out I've done my best on my side to kind of enhance the sound quality when I can but the conversation quality and what Joe brings to the podcast is absolutely sensational and once again I can't wait for you to hear it so without further ado three two one let's go hey joe how are you doing hi luca i'm good thanks how are you i'm doing very well this is really weird doing a remote interview where you're in california i know what a jet setter eh? yeah look at you you've been to new york you're you're very much living a life that i'm envious of from our side of the globe you should have come with me yeah you're gonna have to put me in the suitcase next time <laughs> you know baggage allowance is not what it used to be yeah and i'm definitely definitely gonna cost you a lot of money in extra baggage unfortunately <laughs> probably best not to start an interview talking about chopping you into bits yeah exactly probably not but we're here now so <laughs> so joe the first question is can you give me a song that reminds you of a great time in your life or a positive memory yes yes i can oh and that's my answer you can okay second question what would that be <laughs> um oh learning how to smile by everclear oh i haven't heard that one. Oh, it's a great song reminds me of i think being young and not really understanding how to be completely happy with myself right and you know i think that's always going to be an ongoing process but there's something about it it always makes me smile when I hear it, even though it's not tied to a particular memory. Sure. Oh, I love it. It's a great song. It's probably that's probably just going to be song number one, though. I think on the list, we, yeah. we've got a bit of warm up to do before we get to song number seven. <laughs> <laughs> the whole reason I set up that playlist, which is the Spotify playlist, the Guards of Eden soundtrack, is because I think this is an audio podcast. And with this being an audio podcast and that obviously being a, another audio kind of side part, music is such a big thing, right? It, like it, we attach a lot of feeling or memories to something when we hear it. It's so emotive. 
Yeah, and it can almost it, it's like a nice way to not define someone but someone to be able to go like think of that song and go back to it and then that be their kind of legacy on that playlist well I hope you enjoy it when you listen to it for the first time I know um, because I think I've heard it about 19 million times and <laughs> yeah it's, it's a big one I think I was really into Everclear when I was at university in Nottingham yeah and so that's you know half my life ago now yeah <laughs> Um, to me, that always stood out as as their best track. Yeah. Oh, cool. I can't wait. I'll be listening to it straight after. <laughs> many, many times thinking of me. Yeah, of course. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was introduced to you through our friend Bridget and your episode with her on the podcast, of her podcast, which was In Bed With Bridget. How did you find that oh. whole process? Oh, it was amazing. Um, Again, that was another random recording where we were in the middle of a storm and I kind of had to lean out of my bedroom window, but not so much that I was getting wet because my Wi-Fi was gone and I needed to use 4G. Bridget's amazing. You know, she's one of those people who can make you feel comfortable no matter what it is you're doing or where you are. And I love talking to her. I could talk to her forever. Yeah. Um, So I loved it. It was really, really nice. It doesn't seem to matter what we talk about or when we do it. She always gives me a slightly new perspective on everything I kind of think and say. But it was a great experience. You know, I think if we're really honest, we all love to talk about ourselves a bit, don't we? 100%, yeah. (laughs) The one thing that did intrigue me, though, is that with your story, which we're kind of going to go through the journey, as it were, there's a lot of, like, darker times compared to what you've been going through now. And I just wondered... Do you find it challenging kind of having to go back and think of those sort of times? No, not really. I think it's really important to acknowledge the dark and the light within life and within us. And, you know, I think when we when we do that thing where we try to avoid acknowledging the darker side of ourselves or uh, the struggles that we've been through in the past, what we do is we overlook a really important building and growth process in our lives. And to overlook those aspects is to kind of deny a really fundamental part of yourself and your existence. You know, without the darkness, there is no light, you know, because it is, life is about that contrast and being able to, to grow through a struggle is so much more enriching than denying it ever existed. Completely agree. That's awesome. I don't know. Maybe it's because I try to think of it in my perspective and how I would be. And maybe I'd I'd feel like I'm more sensitive and I'd struggle more. Yeah. You know, I talk about a lot of things in public Mm. that some people would kind of shy away from talking about in front of other people. And, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing if there are things that you don't want to talk about in front of people because, you know, some people are more private than others. But I do think that if you're the kind of person who is comfortable or benefits from talking about your struggles that it's important that you do it because it helps those people who don't necessarily want to speak about it in public you know every person has something to offer you know the rest of the humanity that we come into contact with and if by talking about my struggles that helps one person on any given day then i think it was worth me doing and Someone, I was talking to someone last night actually, who described it as a, a moral obligation that mm. if you are able to do something that will help somebody else, you know, no matter how small it is, 
that really, you know, you kind of owe it <laughs> to to that person to give them that part of yourself. And I, I really like that because, you know, a lot of time in life, we don't give ourselves the permission to do the things that we want to do the most yeah. because of fear or because of, you know, whatever it might be that's holding us back. And sometimes when you look at it more as a service rather than it being about, you know, ego or self-publicizing, then actually it becomes so much more enriching for you anyway, you know? Yeah. I, I did a, a couple of talks when I was working in Ibiza, I think, was last month, I think. God, it feels like forever oh, wow. You know, the sense of fulfillment that I got from speaking to a group of people who were there because they wanted to learn something new. I love to speak and to be, it's not not to be heard, but to know that what I'm saying is helping somebody. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, so, I agree. You know, to, I'm I, to, to, maybe, maybe it's just that feeling of, you know, becoming a person of substance. Yeah. You know, and, and having learned some of the things that I've learned, I do, I do really feel that I can help people. And that is ultimately, I think, probably the most satisfying feeling in the whole world is knowing that you have lived a day with purpose. One hundred percent. Yeah, I guess it's reframing that you've yeah. re- you've reframed what a lot of people don't or don't have the opportunity or I guess the the knowledge that they can in terms of knowing that their experience can be valuable to others and that it isn't self serving directly. It's yeah. it's something that it it serves a bigger purpose than you, and then it just happens to be that a byproduct is it makes you feel better about your journey and kind of where it's taking you now. Absolutely. You know, I think it all comes down to the importance of human connection. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I think there are so many ways in which we avoid each other now that when we get to a place where we reconnect with other humans and we share our experiences, we share our struggles, and you have, even if it's just a single moment, you know, where you say, I understand, you know, I'm glad it's not just me. Yeah. You know, I felt so alone and now actually this is created a space where I can feel how I feel you know I want to start at the beginning for Joe and <laughs> I know right I always feel bad saying that to people because I'm like oh god you gotta go, go through a lot but what was your childhood okay. like were you born and raised in Surrey um well I was I was born in Surrey yeah um but my family we moved around a lot with my dad's job so we never stayed anywhere really much more than kind of uh, four or five years. Ah. So, yeah, I moved around a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. North to south, south north. Yeah. Zoom, zoom, zoom. <laughs> um, and by the time I was uh, at kind of sixth form, um, I was back in Surrey. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, just in just enough time to, to move away to university. Yeah, because you ended up going to Coventry, right? Yeah, I went to Coventry first and then uh, to Nottingham to do postgrad. Ah. How did you find it going back to the Midlands, or were you just at that point were you just comfortable travelling, and it just felt like a some well, seamless? The Midlands was somewhere I'd never actually lived with my parents. Oh. So when I went to Coventry, um, I sampled the West Midlands, and then when I was done in Coventry, I tried out the East. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, um, I actually I had a great time at university. I, um, I, I some would argue, too much of a great time. No. <laughs> uh, I did 
established quite, as I'm sure we'll get into later, established quite a lot of damaging habits. Right. So I was uh, footloose and fancy free. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, I did learn a lot of things and I did, once I got settled in, yeah. I did quite well academically. Yeah. Um, but as I came towards the end of finishing university, I realised I had no real idea what it is I wanted to do. And so I just kind of stayed on and just kept doing more and more courses. Yeah, <laughs> so that's that's how I actually ended up staying at uni for so long. Yeah, cause didn't because you I, do... just didn't, I didn't know where to go. <laughs> Which I feel like is something that is super relatable to a lot of people that go to university, that you kind of get to, what, 21, 22? And they're like, right, so we need you to know exactly what you want to do for like the next 50 to 60 years of employment, right? Well, I think it's kind of, it's one of those, uh, one of those situations that you can get yourself in at any point in life, really, mm. because what I had done is I'd spent my whole kind of teen life and, you know, my school years with the sole focus of going to university. Yeah. So for me, my, my end goal, as, as it was realized, I, you know, I came to see that I had no, there was no progression from there. It was just that I had reached, I'd reached the end of my, like, life plan. I didn't have, I didn't have another, it wasn't a stepping stone to um, a career in my mind. It wasn't, you know, uh, a bridge to further progress. It was my be all and end all. You know, I, I am one of these people who, I have a fixed goal and I get I get very much inside it mm. and really focused, really determined and it's at the detriment of everything else. So, you know, balance is something I strive for really everywhere in my life yeah. because it's experiences like that where I, I realise that my focus is so strict sometimes. It really, it blocks everything else out, even to the point where, and you know, it caused me a huge amount of emotional distress uh, and depression when I got to the end of university and realized I had I had nothing, yeah. you know, ahead of me, or so it felt at the time, you know, that I had, I'd done everything I thought I was going to do, and then, <clears throat> that's yeah. it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, really, that, that was only the very beginning. It's just because I'd invested so much time and effort into thinking that that was the end goal yeah I, I didn't do any further planning at no. that stage it was the same for me like I, for me anyway I, I it was this idea of you you just focus on getting to uni and then you kind of hope yeah. you're on a hope and a prayer when you get there that divine intervention happens and the the, the dream <laughs> of everything hits you right and I, I had no fucking idea like what I was doing and I ended up dropping out anyway oh, yeah. so it wasn't even like, by the time I finished, I was like, well, I didn't even fucking achieve what the whole point of me coming here was. I went to Southampton, so, from Kingston, so, a little bit of travelling, nothing too wild, so, yeah, I moved away, and then by the time I came back, I was like, well, yeah, I'm like, almost as useless as when I was before I went to Southampton, it, it felt like, you know? I originally went to university to do law. Oh! Um, and I, I failed my first year, like, right. comprehensively. <laughs> I remember sitting. <laughs> I remember sitting in an exam <laughs> and having so little clue what the answers to the questions were. I just made up laws. Wow. And, uh, and you know, I look back on it and I think, wow, you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's that's the ultimate blag. 
Yeah, like, right. Yeah. I would have been, I would have been better off just saving that three hours of my life and just not going. You know. <laughs> um, but I, I clearly thought I had it all sorted out to the point where I could just, I could just make up the law, and that would, that would get me through. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I failed that year, uh-huh. um, passing only legal skills. So okay. I'd already signed a contract on a house, which is why I had to stay at university ah. in Coventry. Right. So I quickly, I quickly changed my course, and I did get some some great referrals from the law department. They were very kind. I, I changed courses. I actually ended up doing something. Firstly, that I enjoyed a lot more, mm. but secondly, that I I never would have gone to university to do. When I when I entered university, I thought, you know, I'm going to university. I will be a qualified lawyer. Therefore, I will have a job at the end. Right. But what actually happened was I went to university to be a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. (laughs) It's so important to understand that there are certain vocations that we can appropriately fill. (laughs) There are there are other things that we can practice our asses into. Um and and there are some things that were never meant to be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I don't at the time, it was devastating right. because I'd never failed anything academically ever, mm. and yeah, it was it was a horrible, horrible thing to have to just that feeling where I knew that I was going to have to tell my parents. Yeah, that's exactly um, how I felt. Yeah, and it it was it was horrific, mm. and it made me so determined that that wouldn't happen again. Yeah, um, because. It was just, oh, it was, it was a horrible, horrible summer. Yeah. That the knowledge that, well, you know what? It was the knowledge that I'd wasted that whole year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because don't get me wrong, like, I didn't do any work. No. Like, I didn't do any work at all. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say, oh no, it's, it's just because I'm not a lawyer. No, I'm not a lawyer because that kind of disciplined learning is not something it's yeah. not something I can do no. it just isn't but respect all the lawyers out there yeah. um, because that's not who I am that's <laughs> it. and it takes a lot of focus a lot of solitude a lot of reading mm-hmm. and I'm a talker yes you know I'm, <laughs> I love reading I love reading but only you know uh, on my own terms sure. <laughs> rather than from a statute book so uh, yeah that was a good lesson it didn't feel like it at the time, but just accepting true failure. Yeah, yeah. Um, as as something that I had brought about. Yeah. <laughs> what I was going to say was, is the funny thing is, I don't know if this was the case with you, but when I dropped out of university, so kind of that, you know, that failure at educational level, everyone in my family or family and friends wanted to have their say so it wasn't like oh. you got it wasn't like you got dragged through you know hot coals once it felt like every time i spoke to a family member and it was the first thing we spoke about they had to this is how i feel and tell you right so it kind of i can relate to that in terms of it's embarrassing enough having to tell your parents but then it's you know all these different people that have to have their opinion because they thought you were going to get it done and you didn't I don't know if that was kind of but your you know, experience. That's kind of, that's, but you know, everyone, everyone all, will always have an opinion about everything, won't they? Yeah. You know, and it's the weight that we attach to other people's opinions that causes us distress. 
Uh-huh. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't what they thought that was the problem. It was what you thought and the weight that you then gave their opinions. You know, and uh, it's it's hard to reframe thoughts when you're in the moment, isn't it? Mm, yeah. It's so hard because you know emotional pain is is one of those things that it's it's hard to step back from in the moment. And a lot of what I do is so reflective. Yeah. You know, it's. I think it's important to learn from the past, but it's it's also important to kind of distance yourself from thoughts when you're having them. And you know, when you're kind of when you're interacting with people who are saying things that you find hurtful or that you disagree with, it's really important to remember how much you're putting into their mouth, in the sense that you are hearing, you know, things that judgments that you have put inside your own mind you know and i'm this is like this is one of my huge personal development goals <laughs> is to is to uh, hear what people are actually saying to me right uh, rather than what i perceive them to be saying to yeah. me and it's with my clients i find it really easy to hear what someone is truly saying mm-hmm. whereas in my personal life I find it much easier to misinterpret uh, what's coming across. And I think with families, that's even more pronounced Mm. because, you know, you've grown up in that unit where there are certain rules which, as you grow older, you don't necessarily agree with. And there are certain boundaries which you need to kind of reset as you grow older. And, you know, things that you've been taught, you kind of want to move away from or... You, you know, you realize that the people you love, there is sometimes a level of fundamental disagreement, mm-hmm. you know? And you don't have to agree with everything, even that you've been taught, but you do have to find, a, you know, a place to kind of compartmentalize it to yeah. work with your life in its current state. One thing that I did want to touch on was, you alluded to the habits that you picked up maybe in university, but it was the idea of the amount of weight that you ended up losing. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the weight gain began at university or was it something that you kind of found from a younger age? Uh, so I, I, I started a kind of sequence and cycle of uh, addictive behaviours um, in my mid-teens. Okay. One of the house moves that we did was between the fourth and the fifth year at school Uh and it was around that time it was around that time i had uh more social difficulty in in my teens than i realized at the time and it's only sometimes like especially with me i look back and i think you know was that situation as i perceived it to be yeah or what was something very different actually happening and i think the younger you are the more likely you are to to create a story around something which feels better than it actually is Mm -hmm. and for me it was only when i got older that i was able to kind of unpack a lot of the experiences i went through in my teens and see them in reality rather than uh the kind of sanitized version that I created for myself to just make myself feel safe at the time so I started secret eating around the age of kind of 14 15 um and I did that for a number of reasons one of them was that I didn't like eating in front of other people okay um because I had this like massive fear of judgment Mm. 
and it was based around I was like quite a different physical shape than the other girls in my class and I kind of looked like a normal child from the back but I had like a, a round belly oh, okay. and and they were all like kind of you know getting waists and hips and I was not and people would ask me if I was pregnant and that was like you know it was kind of it was a really awkward time and up until fairly recently I always said oh no I had a great I had a great childhood I was really popular at school blah, 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 blah. but actually I, I wasn't I didn't have the circle of friends that I thought I did you know there, a lot of my social life was kind of bouncing between groups and not really feeling like I fitted in you know I always I always felt like an outsider and that was because for, for a lot of my young life I was an outsider you know I literally came from the outside yeah. to every situation that I was in right. and you know both geographically and and socially mm. and that made a lot of normal things feel more difficult than I think maybe it did for other people and I was I was bullied a lot which I didn't ever factor in yeah uh, because um, the nature of uh, some of the bullying I went through was quite uh, psychologically abusive. Yeah. So there were people who would uh, call me names and and then treat me very differently in private. Oh, okay. So um, I I thought they were my friends and didn't really acknowledge actually the, that that was something that ultimately would be quite damaging for me psychologically. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, I started eating and I think when you're a kid and you're at home, you know, you have people looking out for you and making sure that there's a vegetable in there somewhere. Yeah. Making sure that you're eating at meal times and that sort of thing. Um, but when I went to university, all bets were off. Yeah. If there was if there was anything I could consume, I would do it to excess. Yeah. 100%. And that's that's the shortest version of that, of that kind of story really is yeah. that you know if it could be consumed and it was available to me that was it it was yeah. it was going to get done i don't know if that's a wildly common experience or it's just something that me and you happen to have very much in common because it's the exact outside of the moving i feel everything you're saying is almost like you're telling my life story growing up because I was the that's exact kind of same. What I was saying earlier is that you know we we think that we're so different. We think that we exist in our little lonely bubbles, and it's not until you know we get talking with you know people that we wouldn't ordinarily yeah. meet sometimes. No. You know that actually we start sharing experiences, and there's so much common ground yeah. because it's a human experience. It's not. You know, the sense of feeling like an outsider, I think, is shared by so many people. Mm. And the responses to certain feelings are so similar. Yeah. You know? And I think it's got a lot to do with, you know, the messages that we're given culturally and societally, you know, that, you know, we, we get taught, oh, well, if you're, if you're feeling low, then here is the chocolate, the ice cream, the alcohol, yeah. the tobacco... If you're, you know, if you're a rule breaker, there's a whole world of recreational drugs that'll make you feel better too. You know, it's yeah. on the one hand we're told this is behaviour you must not enter into, and on the other hand we're told 
this is how you cope with life. Yeah. And and I think sometimes, and for me, I look at my whole life as kind of re-education mm-hmm. of of a lot of a lot of that kind of thing because if I I've spent a, a huge amount of uh, my life trying to escape feelings yeah. and trying to uh, numb my own experience and so I try and always describe this as like a an attempt to escape you know that for me my background felt like uh, you know moving house would always change things right, right? so so then in later life I found that I was always having this sense of needing to physically move right you know itchy feet yeah, yeah. but in, in reality that was just another manifestation of this desire to escape how I was feeling and you know whether it's food whether it's alcohol whether it's drugs whether it's this moving <laughs> compulsion you know yeah. all of this is just a means to uh, divert our attention from who we are yeah. and how we feel and I think it's really important to acknowledge those things mm. instead of running from them yeah. but when you stop running from one thing sometimes you, you then start you, you divert so yeah. you know I kind of bounced around for a lot of years mm. between uh, overeating and drinking yeah. and those one took over from the other yeah. and it was all very kind of cyclical so I'd be like oh I'm doing really well not doing this bad thing yeah. without realising what I'd actually done was just replace it with something else yeah yeah it's kind of yeah. like it's kind of like putting a having one plaster for two cuts and just kind of interchanging right yeah. being like this is yeah this, this is one's covered it's fine that stopped bleeding and then looking at like another part and being like yeah that's bleeding lots more now and right yes so yeah I've stopped causing myself this damage you know, it's it's like slapping yourself on one side of the face yeah. and, and being all like, well, I stopped I stopped hitting myself with my left hand, but then I started doing it with my right. <laughs> yeah. It's so <laughs> I think for me, and I don't know if this is something that because you've travelled a lot, maybe it's the one thing that we might not share. But I found it really strange now because I've been able to reframe my high school years in particular and kind of realise that I actually fucking hated that five years at school that when I now speak to people that I really that I thought we were closer then than we actually were because much like you I bounced around friendship groups it, yeah it, I do find it hard to let go of resentment when I see them and think that maybe they've changed and I don't know if that's something yeah. you have resentment is like it's I think it's so I, I find it really interesting mm-hmm. because this is something I've done a lot of work on with myself right that you know when we resent people i and this is this is based on my own experience so you know it i only at the moment my control group is one (laughs) so so, uh, by no means am i saying this is the same experience for you but when i sat down and i looked at all of the situations that have created resentment in my life Mm all of the people I have resented and the actions I have resented, I came to see that there were misunderstandings on my part a lot of the time. There were things in myself I did not want to acknowledge that I found it easier to avoid by pushing a resentment onto somebody else. Right. 
Okay, so one of my, right, this is, this, I'm going to explain it with a really, really broad, generic one. Sure, okay. Right? Yeah, of course. I used to have a huge amount of road rage. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Because, um, like, literally everyone on the road. Right. Okay? Yeah. And it was because I really, like, I really resented the fact that I had to share the road with other people. Right. Right? Yeah. Because... I thought my time was more important than anybody else's. Mm. I thought I deserved to get where I wanted to go more than anyone else. Yeah. Like literally all of my road rage was rooted in a sense of entitlement, mm. like a sense of there was jealousy in that, like envy, yeah. you know, you have a better car than me, so I should get to go first right, because yeah. you have a fucking sweet life and I don't. Mm. You know, like yeah. who are you? Like you accelerate faster than me, so you can you can let me go first. Right. You know, and all of this, like everything to do with my road rage, all the impatience and all of the uh, animosity I was feeling towards literally everyone on the road. Yeah. Like it was all in me. Mm. Because when I started looking at it, like, well, if I was a pedestrian in this situation. <laughs> who has the right of way yeah it's always me it's always me <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all of all of that resentment was was all to do with like really negative things within myself right that it was, it was much easier to avoid the fact that i was like petty and uh envious of all these people around me it was easier to believe the rest of the world was a bad person than to acknowledge i had any bad within me right right yeah? Yeah. And I'm not saying that some people aren't complete assholes and they <laughs> do shitty things to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because because that is that is true. Uh-huh. But when you hold on to a resentment, that's about you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So resenting that situation or resenting that person is something in you that's not letting it go because it's more painful to move beyond it. Mm. I like it because the one um, the one that I have is in terms of the most resentful I guess is that I've written about it before but it's having my sexuality questioned a lot growing up in terms of I'm straight but yeah. I went to an all boys school from 13 to 16 no no younger 11 to 16 and I guess from the age of 13 up to like two years ago were people that just kept telling me that I was gay. You're gay, you're gay, you're gay. You're definitely gay. And it took a lot to kind of, I guess, realise that it isn't even a bad thing if, if I was anyway. But I think being challenged on something and being told that I was something that I knew that I wasn't was the more kind of thing that really stuck with me more. And it dented my confidence a lot growing up. And it, I think and that's it, like, you know, that's, that's growing a sense of injustice within you, isn't it? Yeah. Where you're, you know, and also it's, when other people perceive something about you that isn't true mm. and perpetuate that, yeah. your need for understanding is the thing that's that's causing that pain within you. Yeah. yeah? yeah. So you want you want to be understood so badly by these people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, that's the core of your pain there. Yeah. Is that you want to be understood and you're not being heard for being your true self. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But what what's important to remember here is that 
you don't get to be in charge of anyone else's opinion. No. That's something that is so beyond your control. Yeah. You know? And other people's opinions are nothing to do with you. Yeah. What someone thinks of you, that's none of your business. No. And that is so hard to let go of. Yeah. It's so hard to let go of. Because we do have that intrinsic need to be understood. Mm. You know? Because we see understanding as acceptance. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. You know, we mis- we misunderstand other people all the time. And, you know, you do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because cause we're always, I look at it like every person we meet, we sit down and we have suitcases, right? Oh, okay. Literal, literal baggage. Yeah. <laughs> every conversation you go into, you take your baggage with you. Well, and they take theirs. Yeah. And that's why, you know, you kind of, you can't ever, I mean, besides the fact that you can't actually change somebody's mind about anything, no. ever. No. You know, there are things... Things we can change and there are things that we can't. And one of the most fundamental things that we can't change is someone else's opinion. Yeah. They have to come to that themselves. And what you know, what you're doing when you're being in pain that you're not being understood is, you know, you're stopping yourself from being yourself. Yeah. By the way, that's a lovely preview into what we'll talk about later in terms of there's certain things you control and there's certain things that you can't. I believe yeah. there's a certain prayer that we'll be bringing up. I was trying up. deliberately to rephrase it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a prayer that we'll be bringing up later in a bit of your journey. Um, yeah. One thing I did want to go into, because you have spoke about that, there are going to be people that are assholes, which is 100% the truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you spoke about it with Bridget, and it, it was tough to listen to because I, through listening to Bridget's interview with you already, and her saying, honestly, Luca, she's amazing. The whole reason we're doing this interview is because of how much she adores and loves you and said that she'd be great for this. You spoke to her on her bed, ironically, within bed with Bridget. And you spoke about both sides of the idea of, but we'll stick to the biggest, when you're at your bigger side and what people said and how they acted. I want you to somewhat go into that detail as much as you're comfortable with in terms of how people treated you at that time. But how challenging was it at that time to live a life that people reacted the way that they did for something that at the time that you didn't directly impact them in that way, but they just felt, I don't know why they felt compelled to kind of, you know, make it their issue, right? The thing that I've, the thing I've realized the most about, certainly about weight, Mm. is um, that and it's actually quite a painful realisation to come to um, is that it really does not matter how much you weigh mm. that there is there is always someone who has an opinion of it Yeah, and it was I mean it's it's been really poignant for me to because I've existed virtually at <laughs> every conceivable weight yeah right <laughs> um uh, and so, you know, when I was at my biggest, mm-hmm. um, I was 21 stone. Yeah. And that was kind of in my mid-twenties. Okay. Uh, you know, and I'd put on weight quite consistently for a period of about 10 years at that point. Sure. The hardest, the hardest thing at the time was that people had, they had no compassion. And so no, there were no offers of help. Mm. or there were no acknowledgements of pain yeah. but no one had a problem with 
insulting me to my face. Right. You know, nobody, perfect strangers would work, walk up to me in the street and call me names, you know. And the thing is, to me at the time, it felt almost normal because, you know, if I, if I looked back, people who I thought liked me called me names, right. you know. So it was, it was actually a very familiar process. Yeah. Um, and it didn't seem, it didn't seem as harrowing at the time as, you know, I find that behavior quite revolting now. I agree, it's and, disgusting. But at the time, it, it just felt like it was my life. It was just the way that I existed, you know, and I rooted so much of my identity in the size that I was, mm. that it felt acceptable to me that, you know, people would throw things out of cars at me. <laughs> like, I got a full cup of coffee once. I was, yeah, pretty grim. People are very keen to to point out difference. And again, it comes back to, you know, that level of insecurity within themselves. Yeah. You know, we, I think we have, it's probably a biological need to, to point a finger at difference because of the way that it makes us feel about ourselves. You know, if someone else is different, then that means I belong. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's, when I describe, you know, a lot of the experiences that I had, you know, and how I grew to be afraid of leaving the house and mm. how I found people treated me, really, I, I've i only isolated a lot of those experiences by how I have been treated differently at other ways, you know? So I didn't realize that when you wait on a curb, often people will stop for you because mm. when I was at my biggest, people would speed up right you know and people say to me sometimes or or maybe you're imagining that some of these things happen like and it was just because you know you felt bad about yourself that you you push that onto other people but i'm sorry if you have existed at weight a weight that some people feel is unacceptable mm. you will bear the weight of that judgment yeah. you know not just psychologically but in in reality you know, people can be very, very cruel. Um, but again, how we uh, process that comes down to the resentments that we hold. Yeah. And and moving beyond that is, you know, how you grow through that kind of experience. But, you know, ha- having weighed eight and a half stone and people aren't backwards about coming forwards to tell mm. you that you need to eat a pie. Right. You know, like, and that can be a crippling judgment for for someone who is struggling with their weight you know just because just because you see their solution to be very simple you know again everyone has their own baggage dealing with your problems is a very individual solution yeah because you you know these snap judgments that we make about people are rooted in our own the the value that we place on uh, a certain aesthetic look you know so I felt that uh, you know when I was at a higher weight I felt that people's treatment of me was just because of the way that I felt about people who were overweight and the fact is you know I truly believed that I was as disgusting as people were telling me Yeah. you know 
And the only way I think you can move beyond any difficult situation is to accept the part that you play in it. Yeah. And I was playing a very, very strong role in in hating myself because of, you know, the, these bags that I brought to the table, that I believed that I was a bad person because I weighed more than the average. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, found, and I, it was that belief that was damaging to me. Yeah, and I found it... Re- the fi- One thing that really stuck with me, because I think it for anybody that has, you know, made a comment about someone's weight... I was, I think the heaviest I've ever been was 18 stone. Um, I had a back surgery and kind of, that was one. I mean, I was already, much like you, I was putting on weight very consistently from probably like early teens. Because mm-hmm. once again, similar to you in terms of secret eating and, you know, an issue that I've kind of, I've, it's one of those things you battle forever, right? You don't ever get it 100% right, but... You know, absolutely it's like yeah every day yeah so it's yeah junk food and everything and once again secret eating and very very similar themes that get you to there but i was fortunate i never had anything you know that's quite like you've had but one thing that you made you made a point of it and i think it's super poignant and i think it's super important for people to know is that through the comments through all of the actions that people took when you were at a heavier weight it never made you want to lose weight. <laughs> no, no, fat shaming isn't something that's ever going to work. No, no. Or body shaming no. in any in any way. It's there are a few people who respond to negative encouragement. Mm. There are a few. Yeah. But in eight years of personal training, I've only met one. Right. And that was one client out of all of the people I've encountered. Yeah. Who did not want to be encouraged positively right. you know it comes back to what you were saying is we do we fundamentally want to be understood yeah right yeah and we all have an inner critic mm. and i think for people who have uh, damaging behaviors they often have an incredibly noisy inner critic Mm, yeah. And the last thing that they need <laughs> yeah. is the rest of the world adding to that. Yeah. You know? Because all of that internal conflict yeah, yeah, yeah. is enough shaming to deal with on a daily basis. You don't need the rest of the world to tell you all the things you're already telling yourself. Yeah. You know? And if anything, that kind of reinforcement constantly from external places creates more damage because you're I think a lot of these behaviors which are self-destructive and you know abusive to ourselves you know they come from a place where we're trying to escape this conflict in our minds you know where we want to believe that we're a good person Mm -hmm. and that we can do good things but there's you know a voice that's telling us that we're not and so when you add to the noise that you're trying to avoid, actually that's that's only going to serve to increase all of those behaviours yeah. that were the things you would, you know. It's hard because we're causing ourselves damage by trying to escape from things that we need to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's fucking hard. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the thing is, all of these, all of these strategies, like, you know, eating, drinking, shopping, mm. self-harm, like, they're 
kind of compulsions that there are avoidance strategies as well. Mm. But the problem is that they're coping mechanisms. So, you know, they're there because we're trying not to deal with other stuff. Yeah. And when you take them away, then you feel vulnerable and raw and you feel that you can't cope with things because now, you know, your 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 self-harm friends have gone away. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you're physicalizing an emotional pain, right? It's with food, you're, you know, you feel bloated or you feel sick or alcohol, you feel drunk and hungover. And it, you're fit, for me anyway, both of those things as in terms of in a medicinal purpose, that's what it's ended up being is that, you know, I'm feeling so low that for me, it's, it's a way of just physicalizing that pain and distracting from the emotional kind of... Well, it makes it real. Yeah, it it brings it out of your head. Mm. You know, it brings it out of your head and brings it into your kind of your physical being. Yeah, you know, it's like well now, now it's real. Yeah, it's not just it's not just here. It's I can I've made it a part of myself. Like, and it's tangible, and it's you know it's it's an ongoing cruelty. Yeah, yeah, it's just so natural to have ups and downs through everything, right? Hmm. And it leads me to the an up, which I'm really excited to talk about. When you began kind of your fitness journey, do you remember what I guess was the turning point that you were like, I've fucking had enough, like I'm gonna start getting getting weight down? You know, it's kind of it's <laughs> it's really easy to look back on on it as a linear process. Right, okay. But it's just not. No. You know, it's it's just not. It wasn't as simple as I put on loads of weight and then I lost it. Right. And I, I'm really aware of the fact that there have been times when I have made it look like that. Right, okay. Um, and I have described it in a way that sounds like that. Mm. But the truth is the first time, the first time uh, I lost a huge amount of weight um, and I lost 12 stone literally in a year. Wow. It was, I wanted to know how it felt to be able to move. Mm. I'd lost all connection with my physical self. Mm. And I had forgotten how it felt to simply get up out of the chair without getting out of breath. Mm. And I had forgotten, in fact, I don't think I ever really, I couldn't even relate to not having sores where my clothes rubbed. Right. You know, I couldn't, um, I was always, I, it felt like I was always dressing a wound of some sort, like both literally yeah, <laughs> and figuratively, Sure. you know, uh-huh. there was always pain. It didn't matter what I did, mm. even if it was just wearing an item of clothing, mm. you know, I couldn't paint my own toenails. I, a friend did it for me and it wasn't because I wasn't flexible Mm. it was because my belly was so big I couldn't reach over it Mm. you know and I I got to the point where the most physically challenging thing for me was uh, to wipe myself on the toilet right yeah and I couldn't turn I couldn't reach and I realized that I wasn't even living anymore Mm. that it was it was worse than than 
the worst depression I've ever felt was the realization that to continue in that body was to deny myself the experience of life, that I had built my own prison. And as with a lot of changes I've made in my life, it was a rock bottom moment. You know, it was it was the sense that if nothing changes, nothing will change. Mm. And it wasn't even um, the sense that I would die. It was actually the fear that I would continue to live. Yeah. The pain became so great that I, I ran out of justifications for, you know, I couldn't pretend I was happy mm. because I wasn't. I couldn't pretend I could do everything I wanted to do because I couldn't, you know. I I could blame all of my problems on being overweight, but that didn't make the problems go away. No. You know, this is the thing, is that I realized, yeah, I, I had um, a get out of jail free card for a hundred things in my life. Like, oh yeah, I don't have a good job um, because I'm fat, mm. and I don't have the perfect husband because I'm fat, you know, I don't have any kids because I'm fat and I don't, um, I'll never get anywhere or achieve anything because I am like this. Mm. But that, that then didn't, that didn't lead to any kind of happiness or satisfaction. It was just, again, it was just a resentment game, Mm. you know, that you can give yourself all the excuses in the world and then what? Like, and then what? I've given myself permission to live a miserable life. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was that that overwhelming feeling that I was wasting time. Right. And not just that I had wasted time, but that every minute that I was living, I was wasting time. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I had given myself permission to exist in a meaningless way. Do you remember when you first started seeing progress? Do you remember what that felt like knowing that you were trending, I guess, in that way, in terms of you were starting to, I don't know, gain mobility and starting to find like everyday life things easier? (laughs) Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was soul destroying. Really? Because as much as I want to say, yeah, it was, you know, I got I got a huge buzz from seeing progress. Sure. Right? Uh-huh. Up to a point. And this is, you know, this is a big, at that time, I hadn't done as much concerted work on things like mindset uh-huh. right. as I have now. Sure. And a lot of my struggles during that time were based on the fact that I had implemented a number of behaviors, but I hadn't changed anything about the way I was thinking. Ah, okay. Right? Yeah. So as much, uh, there was a point I reached, and I always always tell this story because it's so important for, especially when people are doing something like trying to lose weight, Mm. and they have a a significant journey, or they're trying to achieve anything which feels like an endless process, like so a a big, you know, a mammoth task, Mm. right? Yeah. I lost five stone and at the time my goal was 10. I wanted to lose 10 stone, Mm. right? Yeah. I lost five stone and I remember 
looking at the scales and I felt this moment of elation I'd reached this um, this like halfway point well it was uh, it was the, you know just that I ticked another goal off the list sure right? uh-huh. so I had this brief moment of like yes well done me <laughs> you know another one another one reached mm-hmm. and then this soul crushing despair because I was like I've just however long it must have been like the five or six month yeah I'm uh-huh. it's like I've poured this time and all this effort into this thing and I'm only halfway right I know how hard the last six months has been mm. I know how much effort it took and now I've got to do all that again right it was so overwhelming in its negativity sure right uh-huh. and I'm always really aware that if I take on a client who is trying to achieve a significant weight loss, that this is a point they are going to reach. Yeah. And some people reach it earlier on, some people reach it later on. Some people who only have a small amount of weight to lose have this moment. Yeah. Because it's, because they, you know, the, the amount of weight is not proportional to the amount of struggle. No. You know? Or, you know, taking it out of the weight conversation and into any kind of goal-based strategy mm-hmm. you know it's not always about about the distance it's about the perception of the distance yes and so you know further down the line i've added to my toolkits things like being in the present moment mm. and that's a game changer for someone like me you know i perceive a struggle sometimes where there is none right you know we focus on this this mountain we have to climb when really we're only ever in charge of the three steps in front of us yeah you know mm. you, and you keep making sure that you step you, the next step is right yeah. you know just that's where you have to be because the moment when you start being afraid of what is in the mist at the top of the mountain when you start thinking about falling off the other side or you know that's when progress starts to uh, go awry. Yeah. Because there is nothing that you are able to do that is outside the moment that you're in. No. You know? Absolutely nothing. No. What was your family and friends' reaction to the whole when you were feeling that low when you were at a heavy weight? And then kind of how did you how did they feel as you were transitioning to a lower weight, I guess? But it's interesting because... Uh, People respond very differently to someone they love changing. Yeah. And it says, I think, everything about that person in when you see the way that they respond to a great change within yourself. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, some of the changes I've been through have been physical, um, but I would say that the most worthwhile ones I've been through have been uh, mental and emotional. Mm-hmm. And every step of the way I've experienced mixed reactions from other people so you know on the one hand there are people who are incredibly supportive and sometimes they aren't the people that you think they're going to be right you know (laughs) yeah um it takes it takes great emotional security to be able to witness someone you love changing and to be a hundred percent supportive because most of the baggage that we take with us yeah. to to every situation. When I have been changing, and I 
I like to think that now I see I see every day as as having the capacity to create great change in my life. Mm. You know, so I don't look at any of the changes I have made as being final. Right. Okay. You yeah. know, this is ongoing process for me now, mm. and so it's important that my support network is genuine. Yeah. Rather than. Um, some of the other things that I've encountered along the way, and I see it with other people as well, that sometimes when someone changes significantly, whether it physically or mentally, it can change the dynamics of relationships. Yeah. So people around you find it very difficult to respond to you in the same way when you're occupying a different physical or mental or emotional space in their lives. Because you know, we take, we, we create a relationship based on that, that yeah. person and the way that they exist. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, their behavior and we accept certain things about them and certain truths about them. And then if we've known them for, well, however long, mm. you know, and all of a sudden they start becoming a different person, this can fuck with your head. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And some people are very honest about, um, the difficulty that they face as you change in front of them and some people find it unsettling mm. and they will behave in ways that we perceive to be bad yeah. towards us yeah so it's not always that people will, will be proud of you or supportive towards you sometimes you know it will spark something within them that that, that makes them feel uncomfortable mm. you know so they it's not as simple as just being jealous or envious, but I think it has its root yeah. there a lot of the time. So, you know, they see what you're doing and it might be something that they want to achieve, yeah. you know, so a very basic level. Mm. Or it might be that it highlights to them something that they've written off for themselves. Yeah. So they think they've reached a point of acceptance with who they are, but actually seeing something else happening in someone else sparks off that chain of thought where they're kind of like, I wish I'd done that, yeah. you know, or or sometimes it just it just doesn't sit right with someone that you're a different person, you know? Because I can change my thoughts. Mm. I can't change your thoughts. No. You know? I can change my mind as much as I want today. Yeah. Or as much as you know, I can decide that a hundred things I said ten years ago are all shit. Yeah. But if you've if you've been um, supporting me in those thoughts for ten years, then that's not going to feel good to you. No. That I've turned around and I've agreed with everything that we've built the foundation <laughs> of our relationship on. Yeah. You know. So what I'm not saying is that negative reactions to change from people around you is a bad thing. No. You know, it doesn't make them bad people. No, it's it makes them unsettled people. Yeah. So when you became a when you became a PT, how did you find your experience early on? <sighs> well, um, when I became a, t a PT, I I wasn't at my thinnest. Right. Um, and I think that's a misconception a lot of people have mm. because I was uh, probably like a size. 14, 16. Okay, yeah. You know, so averagey. Like, yeah. I I came to fitness by accident through, you know, a, a chain of circumstances which 
you probably couldn't replicate. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things. I never, I never intended doing it. Mm. And really, when I first started out as a, you know, with doing it as a job, mm. I was doing it in an effort to kind of save myself. Right. You know. Yeah. It was kind of like, well, I can't guarantee that I'm always going to want to attend four fitness classes a week, <laughs> but I could <laughs> if I was the team. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of like, oh, well, this seems like a really good way of making my hobby my job. Yeah. And so I kind of, I found it, again, I found it quite difficult because I felt like the outsider mm. because, you know, I was comparing myself to other people a lot of the time. I, um, I don't feel like I belong in the fitness industry um, in the way that some other people make a lot of effort to belong in the fitness industry yeah. and you know the thing at the time I did I used that as a stick to beat myself with right. you know that I thought well I'm not one of those perfect yeah, I, yeah. I basically was measuring myself against fitness models yeah right. you know, I'm not I'm not a fitness model therefore I don't belong in this industry sure and um, actually what I came to realize was that the fact that I was different mm. was why people came to my classes. Yeah. You know, the fact that I did get all red and sweaty wasn't actually a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because um, the people who were coming to my classes were relating to me on a different level than they had in other classes, you know? Yeah. And as a PT, I realized that the work I was doing wasn't just showing someone how to squat, mm. you know? The work that I was doing went so far beyond fitness because we were connecting and we were resolving issues rather than spending 45 minutes a session concentrating on how much they weigh. Yeah, exactly. You know, that always resonated for me was that I never wanted a single one of my clients to think that their worth was based on their weight. Now, through my experience, I wholeheartedly am not saying that you can be healthy at any size. No, right. Because I, I know, I know how it feels to be over 20 stone. Yeah. I was, there was no health there. No. You know, there was, there was no movement, there was mm. no, I was not well, no. but by the same token, at eight and a half stone, I was starving and I was malnourished yeah. and I was not well. Yeah. And it wasn't until I reached the point where I realized I could not lose enough weight. Mm. There was never, there was no end point. No. Because there never could be, because the point was simply to be smaller all yeah. the time. Yeah. And that's not where that's not where my sadness was. Mm. You know, that's not where my pain was. Like there wasn't. If I lost another pound, I wasn't suddenly going to be happy. No. You know, and being fit is a lot more important than your dress size. Yeah, I completely agree. I wanted to get onto someone's thirteen months of sobriety. Yeah, so that's me. That was yesterday, right? Was it yesterday? Was 13 months? Yeah, it was 13 months yesterday. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It feels amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. 
I did a hundred days just out of intrigue. Yeah, I did a hundred days out of intrigue, but it is just one thing that right now, I just don't know if I, the desire is strong enough yet to put it down like forever. But um, how has it impacted your well, life? Yeah. You know, it's like, I think looking at things forever is really daunting. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> and, and one day at a time with everything is really the only way forward. Yeah. How has it, how's it, impacted, how's it impacted your life? Well, you know, one thing I wasn't prepared for was, <laughs> was the, the breadth of the level of impact it would have on my life. Really? Because I... I acknowledged for a long time that I was drinking too much mm. and I acknowledged within myself, obviously not in public, yeah, sure. uh, <laughs> elements of deep shame involved with a lot of this kind of behavior. Yeah. Um, but on a personal level, I acknowledged for a really long time that what I was doing was not good for me. Mm. And then kind of what I'm doing is not normal. Yeah. And then it became very much a what I'm doing is outside my control. Mm. And, you know, it was only through those, you know, that series of realizations that I think I could have come to a point where I was ready mm. to, to quit drinking. But it took a lot more than that to actually get me to the point where I did. Yeah. Um, and sadly, a lot of the things that brought me to the eventual point of sobriety were devastating and damaging and you know admittedly I there are a lot of um, sober alcoholics now who who are in much worse positions than I was right. you know and I'm very grateful that I didn't damage my liver uh, in ways that were irreparable yeah um, and I'm very grateful that I, you know, I have my home yeah. and I have my, my children. I didn't lose a lot of the people that I love. Mm. And I I am here. I am alive. Yeah. You know, this is, to me, now an incredible point of gratitude. Mm. And it took the realisation that I was not going to live through my drinking yeah. to to get me to the point where I was able to stop. And over the years, <laughs> I put myself through some terrible, terrible things and I um, was responsible for some terrible things. Mm -hmm. And I found myself in a lot of really dangerous situations. I um, endured a lot of things I didn't need to. Yeah. And all because I was completely out of control with my drinking. Mm. But it was never something that I thought was out of control until the point at which I was trying to quit. Right. You know? Yeah. I kept taking a break from alcohol. Yeah. Because um, I was acknowledging that when I was drinking, really, really bad shit was happening. Sure. Right. And I was feeling the way I wanted to feel. I wasn't behaving the way I wanted to behave. And I was slowly coming to realize that I was not the person that I thought I was, you know? I thought I was having a good time, and I wasn't. And I thought I was um, 
the life and soul of the party. But no, I was a blackout drunk. Yeah, right. You know? And also, then I started realizing that it's very hard to be the life and soul of the party when you're drinking at home on your own. Right. <laughs> so there were a series of lies that I was telling myself. Yeah. Which I believed for a really long time. And, and since I quit drinking, suddenly I was faced with a lot of feelings that I wasn't necessarily ready to feel. Yeah. I was faced with a lot of realities that I hadn't ever really had any full comprehension of, you know? So a lot of the things I had believed about myself simply kind of fell away very, very quickly. Yeah. You know, I thought, I thought I was doing the best I could as a parent. And 13 months later, I'm like, holy fuck, yeah. you know? Yes, I didn't do a terrible job, but I'm doing so much better now, you know. I am hearing so much more of the process and feeling so much more of the process, you know. And yes, with that comes um, an almost unfathomable burden of responsibility, which I had avoided feeling. And it is terrifying some days. But my God, the rewards are infinite. You know, the quality of human connection that I feel now is vastly different. Mm -hmm. You know, simply being able to respond to people in a genuine and honest way that, and don't get me wrong, like I never felt like I was lying to everyone all the time. But the fact is I was lying to myself about how I felt all the time. And so I could never be truly honest with other people Mm. because I was always lying to myself, you know? I was always convincing myself of, you know, I was basically, I was always thinking about drinking. You know, I was always thinking about about how I could make myself feel better. Mm. Right? Yeah. Um, And in actual, I was only ever making myself feel worse. Yeah. And since quitting drinking, I found so many things to enjoy mm. that I didn't realize were things that people enjoyed, you know. Oh. I I was like, what will do with their existence if they're <laughs> not planning drinking, going and drinking, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. Like, where is life? I have no idea. Right. And it's with other people, yeah. you know. It's actually, it's spending time connecting with myself in order to be the best person that I can be so that I'm able to give as much of that person to other people as I can, you know, and that includes my family and the people I work with. That includes, you know, every, every aspect of our beings is social. I really believe this. Mm. And the more we retreat into ourselves or into our addictions, the less capable we are of living the full richness of the lives that we are born to live. Yeah. You know? Mm. Because I guess it's rare, I don't know if it's rare for you, but I guess it's because we live life, we don't have a great deal of time to always reflect. How do you look back at your journey now and reflect and feel about where you are now? Does it give you a bigger appreciation for where you are now? Kind of the journey you've had? Without doubt. Yeah. It's a, it's a tightrope walking between trying not to regret the things you have done or the time that you have 
wasted mm. also acknowledging the part that it has played in shaping your existence you know yeah you have to you have to remove the pain of regrets and you have to, i think you have to look at the past with a sense of reverence mm. you know that this again this is something i cannot change the past can only exist in the way that it played out yeah you know so we owe it to ourselves not to dwell on the pain within it mm. but rather to look at everything that has occurred as a lesson or as a signpost or as a warning you know i the things i have been through as a result of my own actions a lot of them i am not proud of mm. but without them i would not have learned how to behave in a more fulfilling and a more responsible way now mm. you know i not have stories to tell that other people can relate to mm. you know there are so many reasons that we need to be grateful mm. some of them aren't beautiful reasons you know <laughs> yeah but gratitude is in in every the horrible dark deep desperate moments mm. you know there is always there is always something to be grateful for and if i had heard myself saying these things 18 months ago i would have rolled my eyes and told you to get the fuck out these things i have come to realize have come out of like a huge personal shift mm. i would always have said things in the past like no i don't meditate because i'm not the kind of person who can relax right no i think that all of these you know things like breath work like someone suggested or oh, have you have you thought about doing some breathing mm. i'm like i think you'll find i'm already breathing just fine like, <laughs> you know, the cynical person in the whole world ever right but you know now i see everything has its place mm. you know everything happens in the way it's supposed to happen you know and we there appreciate everything maybe not in the moment but given time for reflection given the space to step back and observe our thoughts and our actions mm. you know we can find a place of peace but it does it does take effort yeah. it you know it does not come out of nowhere no. it's you know sometimes we have to do things that make us incredibly uncomfortable in order to reach a place of deep comfort yeah i'm really fortunate in the fact that you know i'm speaking to you now in a place where i feel very very positive about the future based on my gratitude of the past and the present you yeah. know and it's i'm not always this fucking serene don't get me wrong sometimes <laughs> <laughs> i i revert to my my basket case behaviors right of course it's difficult to to base my actions on the thoughts that i want to have mm. but if you use these moments when you're feeling good about things when you can see the positivity in the work yeah then you you get as much shit done when you are there mm. so that when things aren't going the way that you want them to go you're in a better position to step back and say okay i can see what's going on here and i know how i can make it better rather than just kind of you know it's it's a it's like a fantastic balance between accepting you can't do stuff seeing that you can do stuff yeah yeah and you just 
get on with the shit you can do in order to create harmony with yourself and the shit that you you can't control at all you know and that's serenity right there yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) i was about to say god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change (laughs) you know putting things to one side letting things go Mm. you know that seemed like the most difficult thing to think about but actually that simple action of knowing you can do some shit you can't do some other shit yeah right it's that simple and when that takes most of anxiety out of the equation for everything yeah you know and so yeah i would say i would say 12 step programs like yeah regardless of the issue that you might be having yeah there is a really there's a valid place in most people's lives for for going through some kind of 12-step process yeah 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 Yeah. so valuable right joe Mm. i will put everything in terms of links and everything in the show notes so anybody listening right now check out the notes please go and support joe on her journey i'm going to ask you the final four questions they are questions i ask everyone and okay they i usually tell people they're slightly deeper but we've gone to a very deep place today so it's par for the course okay (laughs) (laughs) so the first question is what's one thing in your life that you're proud of overall right okay so i'm meant to say my children right Of course, of course. Um, That's hilarious, though. They are are incredible. Um, And I've learned so much from them now Mm. in terms of, you know, that kind of... They just have such a different approach to life, which I think we can learn so much from. Uh Um, But I think my capacity to change Mm. is, is probably the thing that has kept me alive. Right. And so I... I would probably consider it to be my most valuable asset. I love it. I love it. Secondly, what would one piece of life advice be for people that you'd give? Oh, thank God. Did you not just hear what we talked about? I've got so much advice for everyone about everything. (laughs) Um, Okay. Oh, shit. One one piece of advice. Just one. One really important piece. This is a lot of pressure for this. I know. I do feel bad, but okay. at the same time, I, I know you'll give me something great. Great time, you're like, <laughs> be grateful for this moment. That's a fantastic piece of advice. The third question, what would you say are three personality traits slash characteristics that you've built your life upon up to this point? Honestly, I haven't always, haven't always been honest with other people or myself. Yeah. And- I think it's only through realizing how much I've missed through not being honest that I realize the importance that it has in my life. Mm. Compassion. I have led such a cynical life. I realize whilst there's a time and a place, without compassion, we are not human. Mm. You know, and I'm talking both in terms of uh, understanding and expressing compassion both to ourselves and to others. Yeah. You know, 
and not using it as a virtue. Yeah. You know, the kind of compassion that you feel in your soul towards trying to ensure that the people around you, and I mean, not just immediately around you, but broadly as that you, you treat other people the way that you wish for yourself to be treated, you know? Yeah, 100%. It's, uh, and so the third one, connection. I like it. And I think that when we look at ourselves as connected beings, not just with, uh, you know, our romantic partners, mm. but with our children and our parents and our um, circle of friends, and then a wider circle, you know, and then everyone that we come into contact with, and then everyone who we don't come into contact with, and then nature and the universe, and, you know, any kind of uh, spiritual being that you may perceive. Mm. You know, when we look at ourselves as insignificant in you know, a network of connection, mm. we start to value ourselves and other people so much more than when we consider ourselves to be the center of the universe yeah and i do this is the one question i always feel bad about asking someone because it is a it's a very deeper question and i i usually say bear with me i have to read it but i think this might be the first time i've actually memorized it many years into the future your time as joe beale has come to an end the person closest to you has one sentence to describe you and your time on earth, what would you hope that would be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Luca. I know, this is the one question I always feel bad asking. That's some serious, like, gotta prepare for a week to think about that kind of thinking. I know. Okay, I've got it, I've yep. got it. Oh, I love it. Yeah, ready? Yes, very much so. She kept going. I love it. Oh, Joe, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I've absolutely loved this conversation. I really mean that. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Luca. You've been sensational. Thank you so much. I'm wishing you nothing but the best for December. I hope the rest of your LA trip is fabulous and treats you well. And I can't wait to meet you you in like real life. Like real me and you meet. We need to do that. That would be awesome. Looking forward to that too. That would be great. Oh, thank you so much. Right, I'm going to say goodbye to the listeners now. Bye, everyone. Okay, bye, listeners. Bye, bye, bye.